Welcome to the Mindset Neuroscience Podcast. In this season, we're going to explore how we can become better as a species at facing challenges and solving problems, especially during unpredictable situations. We're going to do that by exploring the machinery of our body and the biomechanics of resilience, adaptability, and social intelligence. We'll look at our power to control and modify how we use our hands, voices, bodies, breath, and the intelligent systems of our cells, bones, and muscles to unlock our potential as a cooperative and brilliant species. Thanks for joining. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 12. In this episode, I interview Gina Bennett, who is a retired CIA counterintelligence expert who worked with the CIA for multiple decades and was one of the first people to warn about Osama bin Laden. She is now currently an adjunct professor at Georgetown University, and she has an objective of bringing in a wider range of mindsets and perspectives into national security policy and decision-making. One of her main areas of focus is bringing in women and girls into the arena of national security. We go into many different topics in this episode, including predictive biases and the influence that our role within a hierarchy, community, family, society, culture, how these roles have long histories, evolutionary histories, cultural histories, and how these roles can also be influenced both by our biology and by expectations and social experiences. We also see how these kinds of roles can shape and frame our algorithms for problem solving and for what we pay attention to. One thing that we talk about in this episode is how do we get to what we believe to be true? Do we really understand how knowledge is formed? Do we understand how much our role, the role that we play within a certain system, how that might lead us to believe that a certain kind of strategy for problem solving is always the correct strategy. Another really big piece that comes out of this episode is the importance of a framework that I have talked about before and I mentioned in my book and I will keep bringing up as well is the framework of regulatory flexibility. And uh, two key authors on that are George Bonanno and Charles Burton. What they have highlighted in their meta-analysis and their own analysis of decades of research on resilience is that 
there is a, a fallacy of uniform efficacy. And what they mean by that is when we look at resilience, and we can look at this from a systems perspective, so this can be resilience of a community, of a country, of a family, of a person. As we look at systems resilience and resilience as a foundation of what we are striving for, there is no particular uniform strategy that works all the time. And what we actually see in terms of research on people and human resilience is that there's actually quite a bit of variability and not even great predictability of what kinds of strategies resilient people use. They find that people are actually pretty inconsistent in the use of different coping strategies. And one reason for this that they are exploring in all of their studies is that people who are resilient and this this high degree of within-person variability for resilience is that resilience occurs in the highest degrees when people are choosing a strategy based on the nuances of context. And they develop these strategies on an ongoing basis with emerging details from each situation. So they don't get stuck in one kind of strategy. There's a large range and repertoire and a flexibility. So what they suggest And many other researchers who are studying resilience are really coming to see as we do much more analysis of the data that's coming from over decades of research, is that flexibility itself is the strategy of a resilient system. And part of this regulatory flexibility comes from three main components, which I believe tie into what we discuss in this interview when it comes to security and safety within a system, whether, again, whether this is a a smaller social system like a family, to a community, to a country, to a planetary level. When we're looking at that, it's the flexibility of strategies that we use to respond and not just respond, but prepare, anticipate, and build a strength and robustness to the system before things get bad as well. So not just in constant reaction to stressors, but what we do to build up a system before stressors happen and anticipate them ahead of time. The three main aspects of this regulatory flexibility framework are context sensitivity, range and repertoire of strategies, and responsiveness, feedback responsiveness. These are things that I believe, as you will hear from our conversation, are missing in a lot of the strategies used in national security, as well as in the different kinds of strategies families use, education systems use, even psychotherapy models use, in terms of trying to increase people and other systems' ability to cope with stressors. So one of those aspects is that context sensitivity, and that's the ability to detect nuance and to know when to actually expend resources for a certain degree of threat and when to not expend those resources and spend them elsewhere, to use resources 
and energy for other things such as nurturing of relationships or other foundations of resilience that are not necessarily about only protection and defense, but to also use resources adequately and appropriately for defense and protection when needed. So context sensitivity is a very sophisticated level of intelligence of being able to detect nuances and allocate resources and energy adequately and appropriately according to constantly changing context and details that emerge about different stressors. So high degree of flexibility in terms of detecting what is needed and where to put this energy and these resources. Range and repertoire is another aspect of this. And what they find in this regulatory flexibility research is that there is no strategy that is inherently adaptive or maladaptive. And that's a big shift of paradigm from a lot of other older emotion regulation and other kinds of self-regulation research, which is that there have been theories that only certain kinds of strategies will be effective for regulating stress, for example, or coping with trauma or recovering from adversity. But what the flexibility research is showing is that, for example, when it comes to dealing with extremely high level of stress, that a coping mechanism such as disengagement, which is distraction, pulling energy away from the situation, that that actually can be a very effective coping mechanism until the system is at a different kind of level so that a person can re-engage with the situation at hand versus the idea that distraction is a maladaptive strategy. That is not always the case, particularly when there's stress levels are extremely high. But in other scenarios, engaging with a problem and really embodying and feeling and becoming aware and mindful of the sensations and the stress and whatever the emotion is, that can also be an adaptive strategy. But it does depend on the context, on the different details, on the person, on the different resources they have internally and externally at hand for all of these things. And so these are the kinds of things that we are seeing make it very difficult to predict who will rebound and recover well from trauma and who won't. And that's what a lot of the research is showing is it's very difficult to predict this because there's a high, high degree of inconsistency and variability among resilient individuals in terms of the strategies they choose because they are using flexibility as the strategy and that context sensitivity and this range and repertoire. So in terms of the conversation we have today with Gina Bennett, what we are seeing in the decision-making of national security is that range and repertoire are very limited and they are gearing towards a lot of protection and defense and a more reactive kind of measure rather than incorporating other pillars of resilience, which include the relational and social understanding and perspective taking of many, many different systems that are nested within systems and have long histories and the the personal values that come into play and the different degrees of vulnerability that different people have as members of society and the way they integrate and use a wide range of strategies for dealing with their own traumas and stresses. And so what Gina Bennett is including in our conversation is that we can increase our range and repertoire of strategies for coping with 
adversity and stressors by including more perspectives on how to do this, that it's not just about reaction and protection and defense, but that there are other layers and other dimensions of people's experiences that would help us to increase this range and repertoire of how we deal with life and how we deal with different problems that are coming up in human society in general and within our communities and with our families. The third aspect of this regulatory flexibility is feedback responsiveness. And within feedback responsiveness is an ability to monitor whether a strategy is effective or not, whether it's achieving the thing that we want it to achieve, which is generally speaking, a survival and flourishing of the system. And an ability not only to monitor that, but an ability to cease or enhance or modify or adjust a strategy, implement a new one if needed, or continue the, the current one, and then continuously monitor the feedback if that is working and effective on an ongoing basis. And that continually feeds back into the context sensitivity and detecting the nuances of what is happening, the emerging details that are happening, and then going into a new range and repertoire of different strategies we can choose from. So feedback responsiveness is having a really honest look and an ability to, and willingness to cease a strategy or change it or enhance it or modify it in some way, to not continuously repeat the same strategy over and over and over again without any kind of flexibility or acknowledgement of whether it's working or not. And so that aspect also comes out in our conversation. What's interesting about all of this is that we are talking about national security from her perspective, but what you'll see again and again is that We are so often talking about systems, and these systems are made up of humans and human decision makers. And the decisions that these humans are making are based on their algorithms, their internal working models, which are based on their brain-body circuits, the thresholds of sensitivity and attentional bias that plays into each person's perception of reality, as well as their strategies for coping the resources and range and repertoire they have in each moment. And so all of these systems are made up of these humans. And so as we study it like this and explore it from these perspectives, we see these that these kinds of aspects of systems are parallel, are reflected, whether we're talking about a person, a family, a relationship, a community, a society, a species, that we can see these different aspects of coping and mechanisms for trying to survive and thrive and flourish, that there are threads, there are concepts and ingredients that are common within systems. And so it just returns again for me to the importance of understanding systems thinking, systems engineering and systems resilience. There's so much we can learn from that. And the more we understand that we are talking about systems and that all of these systems are interrelated, the more we might get to the root and the real root causes 
of why things are not working out the way we want them to, because we haven't expanded our view wide enough of how many systems are at play and how many different systems we could start to incorporate into our thinking as we approach problems. So it was a real honor to talk with Gina. I love that I have been able to integrate some of my own experience in security and in the intelligence communities into my work now and into this conversation. And I hope it gives some new thoughts and perspectives for all of you, regardless of what industry you work in or what role you play. I think this conversation just brings up these ideas of how much we could potentially expand our ability to become powerful problem solvers by increasing this range and repertoire of how we view problems and how we solve them and the kinds of strategies we use for becoming more resilient and achieving what we want to achieve. So thank you for joining me for this episode and I hope you enjoy it. I'm really excited for our conversation because I just looking at everything that you're putting out there, I think is first of all, very needed for people to have as a new perspective about solving problems in general. Um, and it aligns a lot with what I do as well, just kind of a systems approach, a much more holistic view. So, right. yeah. So I'd love just if you could tell the audience a little bit about yourself and sure. Yeah, well, Gina Bennett, I am one year retired from a 34-year career in the intelligence community. I was um, a counterterrorism officer at the CIA, so I spent most of my career, or really all of my career in counterterrorism, um, which I liken to sort of the hunter aspect of, you know, the role in security because it's definitely more the, you know, hunter, defender, protector role in national security, a big part of it. And I currently teach at Georgetown University in the Security Studies Program, um, both hunter-gatherer national security as well as ethics and intelligence support to national security. So have the opportunity, you know, as a teacher to just constantly learn and be challenged by new groups of students, which is awesome. And I'm strategy advisor for girl security. I had been volunteering for girl security really since Lauren um, got the organization started because I absolutely love the mission of um, including more women and gender minorities in national security and the conversations in the fields and the decision making. So um, despite being retired from my day job, I, I stayed pretty busy in this mission space, but I, I really, I really love it. Yeah. So my, um, my background, though, at, in counterterrorism is um, uh, as one of the first analysts to warn about bin Laden and, um, you know, Al-Qaeda and that uh, wave of terrorism that we faced before and after 9-11. So um, had a lot of experience in, you know, strategic warning being ignored and, you know, just, just that whole process. So I get a lot of questions about, you know, how to, how to cope with things like that and what it's like being a woman and a mother and a mother of five in the field. So that's really my background. So fascinating. 
What would you say uh, is the main message that you feel a, a calling right now to, mm-hmm. to portray to people? Yeah, I mean, I think, it, oh, well, it, boiling it down to one main message is really hard, but it is really what you were talking about. And I've you know heard um, on your previous podcast is understanding what we don't know um, and really understanding where knowledge comes from. You know, there's so much we assume is fact, and it is really just cumulative um, observation over hundreds and thousands of years. And so there's a lot that wasn't observed or recorded, and so there's a lot we don't know. And I think making sure that people feel, individuals feel empowered to ask, what are the assumptions behind that assertion? You know, what are the the sort of foundational leaps you had to make to get to this, what you would consider a fact, because those assumptions become the foundation of, you know, research. They become the foundation of what we think we know about medicine, about all of the things that affect our lives. And, you know, one of the things that girl security does is really trying to empower girls, you know, young women who have tended to, because of social norms and everything else, you know, re- refrain from asking those kinds of questions or from or from feeling confident and competent to do so. It's just let people know that you have every right to question what is a fact, what is a norm. Yeah, that goes along a lot with what a lot of my content about the how how we perceive the world, what we believe to know is true, how predictive biases get formed. And I think the other thing that uh, you're, you're touching on here is there are different approaches to preparing for, anticipating, and then reacting to things like threat oh, yeah. um, and danger. So the main focus of attachment theory, which I think is a, a very important theory for people to understand, and they may not realize how much it ties into actually what we're talking about here, which is that attachment theory the big basis of it is how and how and who we are surrounded by when we feel threatened, when we feel in danger and how much that affects our responses and how we build up like algorithms for treating mm-hmm. future, you know, danger and, and feelings of threat. And there's this very big aspect of it where the ability of the people around us to have a wide range and repertoire of strategies is a really big component of how we actually truly stay regulated and truly stay context sensitive of appropriately dealing with threat when it's there mm-hmm. and, and opportunities and not over exaggerating threat when it's not there, but also actually treating it when it is there. So that range and repertoire to me touches on this idea of there's so many different brain networks that get involved, brain body networks, that the emotion regulation, that attunement to nuance and emotions that I know you talk about, and then the more strategic and logical and cause effect kind of thinking. And the the range and repertoire is so important. And I feel like that is the part that also has been very neglected, no matter who you are. If there's a large range where you want to entertain the possibility 
of thinking something through in a different way, looking at Mm -hmm. way, way, way more systems that are interplaying together into this situation instead of immediately going to something that's always been done that way. Right. Yeah, I feel like that's a big part of what you're bringing out. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's almost the entire essence, really. If you could boil it down to to one thing, I tend to focus on the hunter and the gatherer as roles as opposed to gendering them, although, you know, obviously history has. But when you think about it, um, and this really struck me when I was in training before deploying overseas for the first time, and you're learning all about the fight, flight, freeze, you know, response to threat. And, you know, how your body just takes over. You're really not capable of thinking, tunnel vision and all other kind of stuff. And it struck me as, you know, when I was learning it for the reasons I was learning it, it made a lot of sense. But then as you study anthropology and history, human history, you realize if men and women um, or modern day hunter gatherers all have the same you know, fight, flight, freeze instincts to threat, then wouldn't that mean that they survived, you know, with the natural selection, that they survived the same threat context? Hmm. And if that's the case, then the hunters weren't very good at their job, were they? (laughs) I mean, if the gatherers had to also face the saber-toothed tigers, Hmm. you know, for thousands and thousands of years, then what does that say? Mm So. Once you start peeling back and you know revealing that, you start to understand or or at least presume gatherers had a different threat context, and it was existential threat context. It was just presented itself very different from what the hunter protector role was. So when you think about it, you know the the gatherer function um, required strategic resource planning and understanding when we were entering a period of drought or famine or when poisonous berries were suddenly taking over all of the nutritious ones, or God forbid, when one of those babies starts throwing up and suddenly you're going to have, you know, everybody with a stomach virus tearing through your, your clan, Mm. you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, that's a deadly existential threat. It, It was really between, you know, the observations that I had throughout my career and then starting to, to study anthropology and really understand Um, as best as I could, some of real history, it occurred to me that that we have put everything into this hunter survival threat context. And it's shortchanging us now. And it has been, you know, for, for thousands and thousands of years, because the ability to identify those more strategic existential types of threats and respond to them appropriately, as you're saying. You can't, you can't kill a lice epidemic with a spear. Oh, <laughs> it's just yeah. not going to work. When you think about some of the threats that we face as a nation or as a society, climate change, for example, that is not something that a nuclear weapon is going to fix. Right. <laughs> um, and and so, or even in the United States, when you know we realize one of our greatest challenges right now to our security is that people don't trust that their vote is being counted. Now, there's no amount of warships or drones or, you know, soldiers that's going to fix that. So we are really missing out and have been missing out on an entirely different set, I think, of survival instincts based on 
having honed those responses over, you know, millennia. And that's really, again, it has been gendered over history, but it doesn't have to be. I played the hunter role, the protector role. I also play the gatherer role. (laughs) You know, it's really about the roles. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I do think that there's some social norm, you know, shifting that has to take place so that you don't, I don't know, we don't emasculate, you know, our hunters. Right, right. But I don't know if you saw this last year. It was last fall, like October. There was an anthropology story and the New York Times picked it up. And it was about a discovery of a comb, a little ivory comb. It was really small, like maybe three inches. And they found on it um, fossilized lice larvae. But they also found on it carvings that after some, you know, more study, they realized was actually the oldest now known form of alphabetic writing. So they had had this alphabetic writing in a previous artifact, but that artifact wasn't as old as this new thing that they found in the comb. Amazing, right? So it's like 4,000 year old alphabetic writing. So they're very excited about it. And everybody's like, okay, what does it say? And it says, may this comb remove the lice from beard and hair. Wow. And you know, people laughed at it because they wanted it to give the meaning of life, you know? (laughs) And I looked at it and I said, okay, if you look at the Mayo Clinic, lice is an existential threat. If you are not living in a world with hygiene and chemicals and all the other things that you can use to kill it, it will kill off your entire plan or village. And so it stands to reason um, you have an example of most likely the gatherer because they're the ones who created all the the stuff back then, not only coming up with the solution, but taking the time and effort to share that solution with anyone else who might come upon that, that home. And to me, that told me everything about survival instincts that are really about observation, collaboration and communication and strategizing. Uh Those are legitimate survival responses to a lot of threat. Not the same ones as the saber-toothed tiger, but to a lot of threat. And that's really what I'm trying to to help people see and explore, Uh Uh kind of recognize that it's been left out of history, but it doesn't mean it didn't exist and Uh isn't important or relevant today. I think it's important for us to bring it up because I feel like these are these are the times now that are becoming very complex. I mean, they always have been, but just increasingly because we're so connected. When we bring up topics like this, my hope is also that in education and in school and what parents end up talking about families, that this kind of awareness comes a little bit more to the surface. There's quite a few points that you brought up that I that I want to touch on. So one is about systems resilience and thinking actually about anticipation and resistance before we think about detection and response. So I I really like looking at systems engineering when you're talking about networks and all that kind of infrastructure, because I feel like there's so many parallels with uh, how humans, like how we're so connected. 
And a lot of the, the research there points to really looking at patterns, future projection, that kind of thing. And then the resistance piece, which is building up uh, so that things can recover quickly, which yes. are all these foundations. And, and there's so many human aspects we could look at that, which would be strong attachment of children and caregivers as one example, like a lot of that nervous system regulation and ability to do that, being able to free up neural resources for future projection, all that, instead of being in a constant state of vigilance. Those are things where if we can engage a little bit more in that, like the resistant, which they call resistance, but it could be other words, um, like the robustness of those, that that will help, that actually can be less energy expending than the reaction, which then often Mm -hmm. requires a recovery and all that kind of stuff. That also is what I see with the gatherer, like the hunter-gatherer dichotomy there is there is that, you know, looking at weather patterns, I'm sure, and tiny nuances of what the leaves are doing, which may have been very unconscious to to them at the time, but it was there that data was getting gathered and I think is important to gather. And then the other piece of what you're saying with the adding to the collective wisdom for other people and the future, you know, the the berry report picking <laughs> kind of mm-hmm. reports. To me, what that highlights is, I like to look at this as in terms of just circuitry of what people are paying, noticing, paying attention to how they mm-hmm. perceive what the circuitry is. But one of them is like a species survival kind of circuitry and perspective. And the other one is a very tight cluster kind of survival, which as you, you know, as you get less and less feeling safe, it becomes more and more about self, um, that mm-hmm. self-protective. And then it's just put out the spears, put out the armor, just conserve what we can for that one particular node. Whereas species survival is thinking on that way bigger scale. And that's to me what I think for whatever reason with the gatherers, I see that as when they're contributing to that collective wisdom, when they're thinking about like these nuances of what the facial expression on that child might mean. And then very likely if that one child, for example, has something they know that it could keep spreading and making something much bigger. So there is this like heightened awareness of certain circuitry in, in that kind of gatherer type of mindset of really tuning in and mentalizing, like really putting yourself in the shoes of what that being is going through and how they might have gotten there as well. That's a really complex way of problem solving, which is trying to figure out what happened, like what changed Where's, where's the spike in the pattern? And then what created that in order for us to kind of minimize the problem before it gets too big? I think that's a lot also what you're touching on and highlighting is this kind of a, it's like a bigger, it's like a species survival and pl- planetary, you could say. But even if we just think about that bigger scale of survival rather than just us. No, absolutely. It has yeah. it has direct parallel to, to the concepts and, and theories in national and international security. We do think of ourselves as, you know, protect and defend the territory that is the United States of America. And that's, that's great. That's safety. That's the hunter, you know, hunter, def- defender, protector. However, if that's all it's about is a patch of land that we live on. Then the way we live here could be anything. And we'd still be secure from that perspective. We could be living in the communist states of America, or we could still be living in the British colonies for that matter. 
And that's yet that doesn't sit well with us. We don't think of that as as um, our national security because it's not it's not the endurance of our democracy and our and the chosen form of government that we have. And that you know, there's the parallel between safety of the state, which is the primary you know foundation of realist national security and international security theories. And yet security of governance, I think those are very different things. And I do see the parallels and the difference between the hunter and the gatherer role. You know, the gatherer understands that the security of that family, of all that she is responsible for, it doesn't rest just on their safety. It also rests on their well-being, their sense of identity as a group, the the way they love each other and care for each other and support mm. each other. You know, the idea that if your house burns down, you know, you've lost your house. But if you've lo- if everyone survives, you still have your family. It's, you know, understanding the distinction between the two. And I'm not saying that safety isn't important. Of right. course it yeah. is. Yeah. But it's just that we have completely lost the right. imperative of what is security. What is the security of our identity as a, as a society, as a people, as a nation, as a form of government? Um, what is our identity as an individual? You know, and somebody bullies me, you, you know, if it doesn't hurt who I think I am, that kind of resilience then you render that person irrelevant. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, recognizing that there is a, there are a lot of threats that really don't threaten you, mm. <laughs> you know? Yes. But this instinctive response to an idea that a threat means I'm not safe versus a threat is something I need to assess and figure out what to, if I even need to deal with it. Right. <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah. You don't, put that pause, you know, on our our thinking when, when threats arise. So yeah, yeah, that is a big part of the hunter gatherer concept. And that, that infiltrates that parallels into emotional reactivity, even within Mm -hmm. relationships, within families where the threat response is, is inappropriate. It's inadequate and it ruptures, it can rupture the relationships to the point where those people are now constantly also vigilant. And they're using that default response of attack or protect instead of connect and understand and learn. I kind of want to just keep returning to this as well as like, we're not saying that safety is not important. We're not saying Mm -hmm. that protection and defense is not important. It is one pillar of a resilient system. And it is there and it is what allows for the gatherer to put her guard down a little bit and tend to what needs to be tended to. Um, so we do need that, obviously, right. but it's what you're saying that I really appreciate is just there is a need for a more sophisticated and complex way of viewing problems that it's not an either or. It doesn't mean this and then exclude that. And that's what I feel like a lot of people go into very quickly. We have mm-hmm. a very dichotomous way of thinking. If you say that that's important, you're saying this isn't. 
Yeah. And we can hold all of it at the same time. And Mm -hmm. that's that systems perspective that I think is so important. Looking also at energy expenditure too, that sometimes there is an investment of energy for what you were saying with the gather, like the tuning into the relational aspect of, let's say the family or the community or whatever the relationship is. When you're really investing in that attunement and the, the emotional granularity where you're, you're detecting, you're responding, you're serving, returning, you're attuning to that. You are actually building a very robust human because that person is getting live feedback to build really powerful brain networks that allow them to stay in the moment instead of immediately shut down or, or fight. Those are the brain body networks that move us away from trying to think in a complex way, trying to figure out what other systems are at play. And we will become the most powerful problem solvers when we actually are including all of the systems that are at play. That's when we become powerful problem solvers. And that's what I want humans to become. So we weaken ourselves. We weaken ourselves when we narrow that range and we stay in a tiny little repertoire of strategies. I think this is just a really powerful topic in general. I was I was just going to say, as you were, you were commenting on the, well, that description of being able to pick up the nuance and, you know, really build that database of, of knowledge, of da- you know, it's just, a, it's a massive amount of data that you can tap. And obviously, you know, this so much better than I do, but well, I, you know, sometimes where I am most optimistic um, and I, I'm guessing that the human brain evolves incredibly slowly. I'm sure it's like a constant thing, but, in, you know, our ability to measure it is probably mm-hmm. over millennia or, or more. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't really know that it's happening. Kind of like the body. I, I figure, you know, someday if, if we don't <laughs> get spit off the planet, we're going to have a three digit opposable thumb because of our phones. Right. Yep, yep. So. <laughs> At any rate, so, um, you know, I like to imagine the brain, you know, is constantly evolving based again on context. And because, I mean, I can't, I am, of course, biased as a mother of five, you know, having lived that life of, I have to be paying attention to the full range of needs and wants and the communication that's happening verbally and non-verbally across my children at all times. So, because I think, you know, women, I mean, obviously women as mothers um, have had that function and our brains are more capable physically of that function. I wonder, though, as more and more men become invested in being the full parent that they can be mm-hmm. of having those kinds of emotional, deeply rooted relationships with their children, which mm. you see happening mm. The millennial generation is so much better than my generation, X generation, and you know, which is mm. better than the generation before. As that starts to happen, mm. I can't help but think that we're going to have males also who have that fuller, robust mm. range of instinctive responses that you know that include. Wait a minute, I've seen that look before, or. Yeah. I, I I know that if I if I turn this into a fight, I'm not going to win. You know, like mm-hmm. it's just you know, that you Absolutely. have to be exposed to the challenge in order to acquire the capability. And 
That's yeah. where I remain optimistic about where we move forward. Yeah. I just think the social yeah. norms have a tendency to hold all that back. But yeah. But brains can evolve with without the social norms holding. I love back. that. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I, I definitely see very strong examples of that mm-hmm. in my circles for sure. A very strong attunement. And and I look at it again as the circuitry. So, you know, there's they are the hemispheres are specialized and the first aspect of us that really comes online in terms of that emotion regulation is the right brain and it has to do with a lot of that nuancing and emotion regulation and only later is that able to transform into a little bit more of that symbolic graphical representation that we call language and i think this is actually a really important part of this whole equation is that language matters and what language we are surrounded by. uh, This is going back to Vygotsky, one of the legends of developmental science, that what we hear around us in terms of the actual utterances of words, that turns into an inner dialogue, a private speech, they call it. And that private speech, the inner dialogue, is actually becomes the formula for problem solving. So the words that we hear around us create problem-solving algorithms inside our inner working models that we then use, and it then translates into future experiences. And it is extremely, extremely influenced by our social experiences when we're young. And so we're, these are not just actions that we are, we are doing in terms of our responses, a lot of the human experience, especially in our age now, but throughout history, and it's beautiful that you brought up that life thing with the alphabet, mm-hmm. has to do with what did we verbally per- portray as our idea for solving a problem? Mm-hmm. How did we verbally express? Because that's the only way there's the, there is all the, the nonverbal and that comes into the picture. But what we do as humans is we take that to another level and we add that layer of this is, you know, like these are the words that are going to express my intentions, how I solve this problem. And if you think about, so I I mean, I worked in intelligence as well uh, a long time ago for a few years, and we did a lot of analysis Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of linguistic analysis done there, right? To pick up Mm -hmm. on things like that. So we, that is a very important part of what I think we can now change and update is the the nuance, the sophistication of this language and actually verbally really expressing it. And I think that's where there's certain brains that I think that the way the networks are, are wired have a better ability to express things verbally. Mm-hmm. And I think that is kind of the challenge we have now and the calling for the people who do have these really more attuned and complex ways of thinking, these whole systems to get those words out there to help influence all the dialogue everyone else is hearing. Because if Mm -hmm. we are on these social media platforms or even in our, you know, the government job or whatever situation we're in, we are hearing those words. And if they're the same kind of vocabulary over and over again, with the same emotions, the same kind of reactions, which are translated into words, then that becomes part of those internal working models. So that's why I think podcast, like all of this is so important, the books, the podcast to um, get more words out there 
that express other possibilities of solving problems so that more people are integrating that into those internal working models. Couldn't agree more. I also think, you know, and I'm sure embedded in what you were just saying is making sure you do this across disciplines and which is kind of what we're doing here. You know, I I have reached out to, you know, leading anthropologists and zoologists and and medical professionals because of that cross pollination of, as you as you're saying, because you can, I mean, I know from my own job, it's so easy to be in your stovepipe and you, you know, you see the same thing and you don't realize that someone sitting over here in a completely different context is, is, is challenged by the same kinds of, of problems. And yeah. you could be learning so much from each other. So, yeah, yeah, I really appreciate that. We're anti-disciplinary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Because, you know, you, you've done the intelligence piece, the linguistics is definitely, especially with, the, the, I think, the role that you were in. But, you know, in analysis and in intelligence analysis, here's one of those language things that becomes like this hard and fast rule. And no one, you don't even have to write it down. Everybody oh. knows it. Oh. And, and that is the idea that emotion has no role in objectivity. Right. So. <laughs> It, for intelligence analysts, and I would guess for a lot of scientists and, you know, lawyers and everything else, you aspire to objectivity and <laughs> you, you begin to put it on this pedestal as if it exists outside of a context. Right. Um, which, of course, definitely is not true. If you look at law, you know, objective law still exists within the context that it was written, which, yeah. you know, most of ours was really written by, by white European men. <laughs> I mean, that's just our history. But in, you know, analysis and this idea of producing objective analysis and removing emotion, when you're dealing with crises, one after the other, it's ludicrous to think that you can be on the job watching 3,000 people get murdered and, you know, in a in a span of a couple of hours and not have an emotional reaction. Somehow or another, repress that so much that the emotion of it doesn't filter into analysis and decision-making. And the fact that people try to believe that it doesn't only makes it even more toxic, I think. You know, the more transparent you make it, I think the more you reduce its grip on your actual unconscious thinking. Yeah. And, And I tell my students that I consider myself a recovering stoic. (laughs) <laughs> because this, you know, the ancient Greek Stoic idea of, you know, remove all relationships and emotional attachment in your life so you can reach this pure objective thought. <laughs> um, reasoning is just, I love that neuroscience is now disproving this because I remember when I was still working that I read a, a study about, I think the doctor, the neuroscience scientist was in Norway, but I'm, I forget now where he um, was doing research on individuals who had damage to the part of their brain where emotion is generated, is, you know, is housed and generated, Uh and how with that kind of damage, they were, 
they were less capable of making decisions, not more capable of yeah. making decisions. And it was like, boom, yeah. all this time I've, I've been just intuitively thinking, you know, we need to, before we sit down and start talking through this, you know, who done this, you know, and, and what do we do about it? We need to acknowledge the emotion we're feeling in the room, right? Yeah. Get it on the table. Let's, you know, let's let it then recede like a wave so that we can then focus on what is the right thing to do. Yeah. So that was really, for me, that was when I, I first started truly understanding the power of neuroscience, you know, marrying up with cognition and the understanding that all this stuff that we've been told is just in our heads is actually physical. It's biological. Yeah. It's electromagnetic. Yes. It really does exist. And, and yes. now that we have the, the proof of it, yeah, <laughs> people are starting to, to appreciate that. I just mm. think we're going to, you know, we're going into a much, much better mm. future. Excites me so much how you're how you're talking. It, it really, for me, I feel like one of my missions on the planet is to get to a place where I'm able to translate how actually physically mechanical the the, the abstract idea of emotion. We actually could come down to the the fluctuations, the vibrations, the frequencies that are absolutely real and measurable. Um, mm -hmm. I'm measuring them in my own work. And we think that the logic is the, like the primal processing. It's absolutely not. <laughs> it's the embodied visceral kinesthetic sensory that mm -hmm. comes first. And I think even understanding that the cells, every single cell of our body is already making computations before anything even hits the brain. We have a physical flesh barrier. This is a membrane. Every single cell on here has its own brain in a sense. It's processing. It's taking in information. There's gate, there's gate, there are the gatekeepers, there's thresholds, all of that comes in. And there's, you know, even if you think of the fibers feeding up to the brain, most of them are sensory, meaning it's feeding the information from the cells, especially our viscera, which is the deeper layer of the skin and the heart and the organs. Those are picking up on patterns, on, on everything, on the nuance, on the, on the vibrations of other people first, those raw signals, like to me, this is what, if we want to call it, whatever we want to call this, like, that's why I almost want to decipher between the idea mm. of like sensory embodied wisdom or knowledge or intelligence, we'll say, versus the idea of emotion. Emotion is something humans have labeled already. And I think that's why it pulls people away because it, it already mm. is two layers out. It's too many layers out already. So there's these raw signals that, you know, then come up to the brain and then it figures stuff out. But it, in order for us to actually create the word like anger, a lot of processing has to happen. It's very experience dependent. It's very, very, very dependent on the language that we heard growing up. That is a huge part that people forget. Anger is not just this word and it's not just this, it's, there are experiences we have inside our body that create some sort of fluctuation in our internal state that then because of what we've been surrounded by, we might choose a word like anger, but it, there could be other nuances to that. And there's really cool models that are, are breaking that down, like one called the component process theory of emotion, which is that we actually, it has more to do with, it's very live, it's very dynamic. 
we are constantly appraising the movements of another person, the facial configurations, the unconscious like frequencies. We're creating an appraisal based on our past experiences, our perceived ability to cope with the mm-hmm. consequence of whatever happens next. And then that forms something. And a lot of that has to do with what I love about this is it goes beyond culture. It's mammalian, it's mammalian and primate, but there's neurochemicals involved that we, we cannot escape. And those create a juice inside of us. They create a feeling. We can't Mm -hmm. escape that part, right? Those are neurochemicals. Like even in terms of the idea of anger, it's what we have labeled as that. Generally speaking, when you look at this, if you're breaking it down a little more, there's something to do with a goal and something has obstructed the goal and it creates an, uh, an evaluation in our body of, I must remove or navigate around it. Mm-hmm. That feeling of the sensations of, I need to move it or move around it creates the mobilization, the sympathetic response of, I have to actually activate some muscles and blood flow. And that gets read, the raw signals of that with the heart rate increase gets read as it's a feeling and mm-hmm. we've called it anger, but it's actually, I need to remove or move around, right? That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I feel like the more we get into that language, more people will yeah. be accepting that what we have called emotion is real. It's part of the equation. That would be great if we get there because the the denying of it, pretending as, as if somehow or another it is weak to allow it to filter into your decision making or, you know, even to be the framework for your decision making. Mm-hmm. It, it has always blown my mind away because when I think, uh, you know, I, I like to every once in a while as, a, as just an intellectual exercise, think about what are those last things you're going to think of before you depart from, you know, earth? And I seriously doubt it's going to be, <laughs> I wish I had more time to make a better decision on X, Y, or Z, or it, it's, you're going to think about the people you loved and, and maybe you will wish you had just a few more minutes with the people that it, it's, it's that stuff that is the most meaningful when you're really pushed to the end. That's the stuff, that's, but yet we deny it throughout our life. Again, there's a lot of gendering of that too, where it's harder for the man in the man box to to be that way. And the the freer he becomes of that box, the better off we're all going to be. But as you speak about this on a you know on an individual level, I also see it at the societal, the national, the international level. I've always felt that it's um you know, and I've written a couple of books, uh, National Security Mom, because you know, like you, trying to make a an area of study or practice more accessible to people who know nothing about war, history, security, government, policy, that kind of thing. And I absolutely believe that all of the dynamics that you experience in a family, no matter what kind of family, are the same ones you experience at an interstate level. They, I don't know why we, we think that somehow or another humanity just leaps out of itself and mm-hmm. these state-to-state relations or multiple right. state relations are, are not the same kinds of 
conflicts that we're having on a personal level because they absolutely are. Yeah. And so all of the things you're talking about, you know, that obstacle, national pride, anger, yeah. uh, you know, and yeah. how do we respond? Can we choose to just go around it and say, whatever, we're just, we're not going to dignify that with a response. You know, right. we're resilient right. enough. We are independent. We believe in ourselves. We don't need to rise to that occasion, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it's an obstacle, but we can go around it. To me, it has a direct application when you, you know, go further up the scale. That's so powerful to to bring up as well, because people seem to think that a, a company or a country is its own entity, but it's all made up of these individual humans. And the thing that I always, I love to go back to is that we are mammals. I think it's Mm -hmm. so important because it, it brings us back to what actually connects us the most beyond culture. Because the human aspect of us has added all of that linguistic part, which does change how we perceive the world and how we solve problems. The mammalian is so raw inside of us, those neurochemicals and that we have fibers and we have nerves and we have brains. And so when you were talking about even the last, like what we would be thinking about, you know, in our last days, there, to me, there is something mammalian and universally human about that. And Mm -hmm. it is a feeling. And the thing that people don't understand is that, so we are, you know, this is a complex adaptive system. Its entire goal of me is homeostasis and homeostasis includes survival, so maintenance of my organs and all that, but also future projection. There's always that included. That's from Antonio DiMaggio has a lot of work on that. With that in mind, nature, you know, the the natural intelligence of the system has created mechanisms inside of us to ensure that homeostasis is maintained and future projection is maintained. And how does it do that? It does that through these incredible neurochemicals. And these neurochemicals are the ones that get us out of bed in the morning that get us to want to sit still with somebody. So mm-hmm. there's the oxytocin, which is actually is from a very long time ago, has nothing to do with mammals. It was from a, almost um, like just the little multiple cell organisms. Wow. Oxytocin has existed for an extremely long time as a problem solver. So oxytocin has to do with this idea of bonding and the collective, what happens when things become more of a collection instead of individuated. So oxytocin as one example is, is a natural, intelligent driver of our behavior. It is absolutely designed for us to do some form of bonding because nature discovered <laughs> through its entire existence that collectively, as we see with bacteria, collectively, mm-hmm. we are always stronger than individual, always. Yeah. That's yeah. nature. That's nature's intelligence. So we have these things like, like the oxytocin. We have, you know, the dopamine, which is the anticipated reward. We have the serotonin, which is has a little bit more to do with status. What we don't realize is those those are driving. We can say it's logic all we want. The logic is the after effect. The logic is like the ripple, the echo of what we think we've just cre- we've created a story <laughs> to justify everything yes. that occurred inside of us. Those fluctuations. So even a person who is very who feels like I'm in this, the, the national security community. I have made the decision to do this. Mm-hmm. They don't realize that the reason why that feels right is because the neurochemicals of applause and thumbs up have given them a little bit of a hit of, yeah. oh, 
this is right. They think yeah. it's pure logic and it's cold, but there's actually a feeling that they don't realize and it's probably very unconscious to them is mm -hmm. driving a lot of that behavior, including the serotonin, which is the status as well, that as mammals, we were working in a giant global hierarchy of mammals and primates. And so status games are a part of it as well. We want to be the highest. We want to be the alpha. Every mammal and primate strives, that's part of nature, to become some form of of an alpha or at least securing resources for, mm -hmm. you know, future and all that kind of stuff. So we, we need to acknowledge, I think, that those are playing a role. And we can say it's lot this human like logic, but so much of it is driven by these mammalian drives. Yeah. No, that's that I, I love this. It's very educational for me. Um, <laughs> you know, bringing it back to sort of the hunter-gatherer and my own observations throughout national security. Here's where I think, again, that imbalance in security studies and security policy and, and execution being much more on the hunter side. You know, so I guess I wonder that whole set of responses that you're talking about in context of evolution and, you know, the threat in context and the evolution that you developed, I can't help but feel that it's tilted towards a response that is still physical, you know, that reads okay. something as potentially dangerous external threat and then has a physical response that we then add the logic and the reasoning, yeah. you know, to make us feel better afterwards. But mm -hmm. that that stuff has never really made as much sense to me. I mean, as someone in counterterrorism, for example, I never really fully understood the logic. I mean, I thought of it as logic, the logic behind wanting to, you know, use lethal force against preemptively against terrorists because it it just I couldn't understand what the long term gain was. Right. right. I mean, yes, short term, right. I, I do, do not deny that in the short term you are able to stop some horrific things. Got it. And that's yeah. important. And for a national security community, that's what their job is. But when you step back and look at it as a whole, it's not going to stop terrorism. You know, right. you're not going to stop, stop terrorism. So my, my question was more, you know, as a more of a the, my gatherer brain, you know, triggering and saying, OK, I'm going to observe, communicate, collaborate and strategize. One of the things that I know as a terrorism expert is that what terrorists want is relevance, is legacy, is followers. What they fear is being irrelevant and isolated and not the front page news. Mm. So at what point do you mm. sort of say, wait a minute? And this is why I think the national security community in particular does need more people who have a gatherer brain. Again, whether they're male or female, I don't you know really care. Mm -hmm. It's just more of having that set of instinctive mm -hmm. threat identification and threat response. Uh -huh. I think is so important as we move forward. And if for no other reason, because I think in our security sphere, you know, globalization and cyberspace, the, our ability to attribute the actor behind threats is, is already hard and it's only going to get harder as we move forward. And again, you look at the hunter tools in our national security arsenal and they are laws and, you know, international laws and norms sort of require you to know who done it. Yeah. I think we're behind in developing survival strategies and, the mm -hmm. and particularly the resilience that's needed to resist every provocation. Begin to understand that not all threats 
are the same, you know, intensity. Very important. I mean, it's interesting because when I, when I did work in intelligence, it was like 90% male and Mm -hmm. I ended up getting recruited to lead the collaboration aspect where we brought very far reaching different kinds of experts together onto teams. So I feel like that's the kind of mentality that helps with that kind of problem solving. And, but what I think is really important about what you're talking about is the, this evolution of threat and that how it was primarily was about tissue damage danger. So those mechanisms are there and they're the most heightened because they are the most important in that sense. If we're, if we're dead, we're dead. There's nothing else we can do. So yes. So there is always going to be that heightened awareness. I don't think we can fight those systems necessarily. There will often be the first hit of it's the, um, it's called the orient, the orienting response first. So we will always, I think, because of the neurochemicals, because we still are, have this, maybe once we're updating and we've just become software, we won't have this anymore, <laughs> but we still have our, our mammalian neurochemicals and all that. And this, this desire to protect the, the physical membrane of, mm. you know, of my body. So that is always first. And that is the most important. Like we're not, this is what's so important. I think we should keep highlighting is we are not saying that, right. <laughs> right. Like this, yeah. this is what complexity looks like. You get to mm. hold that and that. And one might even come first because we, you know, you first have to make sure you're physically safe. But the thing is, is that what we haven't done is we haven't brought in enough of the types of threats that are, have to do with ideas. Uh, I think that is, and this ties into MIT systems analyst, Donella Meadows is one of my favorites. She talks about leverage points to change. And the highest point, if you go down the list, the hot, one of the most powerful leverage points is mindset or paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Above that is going beyond, like even understanding you're in a paradigm. That's the most powerful, being able to mm-hmm. kind of jump in and out of different paradigms and know you're in them. Um, and then right below that is is the paradigm and a paradigm shift. So that is the most efficient and powerful leverage. And the word leverage is very important, a lever. So you don't have to with every single incident react, you're now creating like a, a bigger ripple effect. So in terms of even like the counterterrorism and the, the national security, it's the idea itself. That's where the problem, our problem solving needs to come in is what idea are we thinking about and how do we go into the paradigms and mindsets of people both here and, and in other places. Like if we're able to get into that, tap into that, that's a level of sophistication now, which could go to a scary level as well. When yeah. you learn how to change paradigms and mindsets, I mean, that's persuasion and influence. But I mm. feel like that is potentially less resource intensive as well than mm. the constant reaction. And now you got to react again because you haven't changed the paradigm. And that paradigm and mindset is what drives all of that behavior. Actually, that kind of speaks to, you know, one of the 
one one thing I wanted to just um, mention because we talked a little bit about girl security and we are often asked, you know, why? What's the point of having more girls and women in national security? Like, what is the end result? Because it's not about a number. It's not, you know, for me, it comes down to understanding girls and they're not the only ones, but girls know from a very young age that their safety is not guaranteed. Their individual physical safety is not guaranteed. And they recognize very early on that they are more physically vulnerable than their, their male counterpart. And when you talk about like a paradigm, when you live in a default society where there is no guarantee of your safety, you don't presume it. Um, you do, in fact, as part of survival and being vigilant and predictive and taking the steps that you need to, to be, mm-hmm. as, as we say, smart in certain mm-hmm. situations. When that is your, that is all you've known. That's been your default. And then you go into something like national security and you realize that the, the hunter, protector, defender paradigm is very different. Their default is that's no, no threat is allowed. Like a, right. a threat, just the presence of a threat means I have failed in some way mm-hmm. or I am vulnerable. And again, the man box, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. so toxic. But, um, you know, when I think of like post 9-11, when we had this idea that we couldn't allow any terrorist attacks inside the United States. Yes, let's try. Right. But if we define our security as the absence of a threat, then we're never, ever mm. secure. And yeah. girls and women know this intuitively. And it is because I do think that they have grown up with a whole set of ingrained knowledge that they yeah. will relate very, very instinctively to a lot of the security challenges that we face as a country. That's why I think they have something to contribute that is different, that is unique, and that is needed in our national and international security space. So I wish it weren't that case. I mean, I wish the girls grew up thinking they were just as safe as boys, but until that changes, you know, I think it is, it's unfair to not acknowledge that they have a skill set, you know, a resilience and, you know, mixed with informed vigilance. It's very sophisticated and nuanced Mm. form of vigilance. It's not all the time. Uh Um, there's empowerment in being, you know, predictive because you can adjust how vigilant you have to be. And that is a set of skills that we need in government and security. And so, yeah, I think that's another, you know, part of this is just acknowledging that with having to live that kind of life, you also have a set of skills that is just unique and powerful. That makes me think of... In neurophysiological terms, the idea of safety is not simply the absence of threat. It is always the presence of a certain type of internal state. And that internal state is generally related to a sense of internal attunement and ability to regulate our own state, as well as our knowledge and our ability, our recognized ability to know that we could regulate with another person and regulate with their nervous system. I think that's really important for people to 
be thinking about that it's not just removal of threat that does not create a regulated nervous system. Mm -hmm. Uh, It actually just, if you don't add the layer of that internal physiological state of regulation, if you don't add that, then you do just mainly remain in a state of vigilance, which never actually replenishes what is needed to replenish inside. It's like the blood flow, the electric activity, all of those resources are continuously put out for the detection of threat and that, the response. But if we don't add that internal state, that safety, that layer where it's something you have to actually add, mm-hmm. not just about removal. And I think when, when a person is more vulnerable, they do have, and that could be children as well. When you are physically more vulnerable, there are mechanisms you have to use mm-hmm. in order to create that. And that's exactly yeah, what you're saying, which is that yeah. that's what we can tune into. And that will create, if we look at it on like a, you know, a family level and then community level, mm-hmm. if more people are satiated in that sense and yeah. feel very attuned to and accepted and, and safe, that's an internal state inside that replenishes internal organs. It opens up blood flow for really much better problem solving than being in a constant state of that blood flow and brain activation that's detection and defense and whatever else. So I think that the more that we can get people who are very tuned into those abilities, that totally changes the repertoire of what happens. Because if you have them coming into communities where it's only about the, the defense and the protection, but you have the this other mindset this other paradigm mm-hmm. where there's an importance to what they are bringing into the equation now that's a resilient system now we're building mm-hmm. the pillars of actual resilience if you look at true systems resilience which is where you can look at species you can look at systems networks whatever we get very focused on these cultural things that we do and we think that's resilience. But if you really look at natural intelligence, nature's resilience, there is so much of that piece first that has to do with collectivity, unified problem solving, attuned behavioral, like synchrony, the oxytocin that's coming from that bonding. That is all like really important for restoring the, the restoration of organs and then the freeing up of new kinds of resources like neural and behavioral resources for really complex problem solving, which then just feeds into this incredible cycle of if you can do that, you are now like, I'm just even looking at this from, you know, working in neuropsychology for a long time, family systems theory. If a family is constantly reacting to the same argument over and over and over again, and there's never mm-hmm. any change in that, then that's all it is. And it doesn't evolve into a different kind of system. And it doesn't get better at solving that argument. Um, But if there is actual resources devoted to what happens before the argument, how does each member regulate themselves before? How How does the family itself put as its mission that we are going to collectively try not just for ourselves, but collectively try to do this in a new way, have that mindset shift, that paradigm. If there's no none of that preemptive kind of stuff as well, and that attunement and that safety, 
then the family just keeps repeating the reactions over and over and over again. And part of that is because we are, our, our brain body system is an energy conserving system. It won't change something Mm. unless it's very, very, very challenged to the end of its line Mm. to stop doing that. So, you know, I feel like we we're we're, you know, hopefully it doesn't take that point for the human species. It may. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Well, I was just even thinking in, you know, in, in, domestic politics, you know, context. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're not willing to yeah, invest in the energy that it takes to why do I believe this set of things? Yeah. Why do I believe this set of things? And how do I communicate it? Yeah, across. So yeah. 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 And yeah, let's we'll we'll wrap up on that note just to circle back to the the very beginning mm-hmm. of our conversation, which was that people often believe that their reaction is just this reaction to something that is absolutely like inherent within whatever it is they're reacting to. And they don't realize that there's so many things going on and how they perceive what specifically they paid attention to. Even the way your eyes move, the actual muscles of your eyes are guided by your past experiences. Do you look down Do you look Mm -hmm. up at the eyebrows? Do you look at the forehead? What do you even look at? Like people don't realize that's actually going on in every moment. And many people have have like an over bias of they look to, there's very specific muscles in the face that are indication of threat versus Mm -hmm. safety. And people don't realize that unconsciously the muscles of their eyes are guiding them to look at the threat aspect of the face, Uh even when it's not there. And processing that as a threat when they could have, if their eyes had moved just a little bit up, they might've actually perceived something very different. So, you know, these are the kinds of things that people don't realize you're not perceiving reality as though it's just this inherent thing. (laughs) Yeah. Confirmation bias. You find what you're looking for. (laughs) Yeah. So as we wrap up any, what would be some last thoughts, anything that you'd really like to share with my audience? No, I mean, I think, thank you, first of all, again, for the conversation, because I I love the cross-discipline nature. And, you know, I think lots of times people, going back to what we were talking about earlier, they don't recognize that all of the things that apply to them as an individual, to their body, to their mind, to their, you know, all of what you're talking about, the relationships have a corollary in national and international security. So, you know, with that in mind, you know, my hope is that people begin to feel more empowered to understand what these conversations are about, to what to understand that the relationship between the United States and China or the United States and Iran or whoever else is not predestined. We, you know, we have choices in this process. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, I, you know, I'm always trying to help people see that it doesn't become some abstract, absolute fatalistic survival of the of the nation you know process once you leave u.s shores it's just not mm-hmm. like that yeah that last note just reminds me of a, a class that took a long time ago where we talked about the idea of almost looking at countries as uh siblings like the family yeah, like who, who would be a brother who's the you know, outraged uncle who's the <laughs> the little brother trying to prove everybody that they're absolutely. <laughs> so that's us. That's the United States is the definitely the teenager on the on the uh, in the family right now. So yeah, one yeah. of one of many, but yeah, one of many. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. 
Well, thank you so much. Fantastic conversation. Uh, I think you gave my audience a lot to think about. Thank you for joining me for that episode. Just a quick update. I may be taking the months of July and August to work behind the scenes and start posting episodes regularly starting in September for season four. I'm in the final phases of editing my book and am really excited about it. It has been quite the journey to write and pour whatever I could onto those pages and not really have it available for other people to see other than the the team of editors that I'm working with. And, and the reference sections are very, very long. I cite a lot of research in this book. I see it almost as a tribute to all of the researchers who have put their own hearts and minds into vast amounts of studies and research over the decades, even centuries. And I love that I have been able to put them all together into this this one book for people to reference. So in many ways, it's almost like a reference book to look at all the different aspects of human communication. That's the main focus of the book. It's called The Biomechanics of Human Communication. And a lot of it has to do with nervous system regulation. That communication is in many ways a tool for us to do that, which you will see in the book. (laughs) And with that, I'm going to be creating a series of very short YouTube videos with different elements of the book. So that's another thing that I'll be working on this summer. And I am really enjoying my new living location, uh, going to national parks and having incredible landscapes and communities of people. I feel really at home where I'm at. So very happy about that. So I will do my best to do a few updates over the summer, but it will be more behind the scenes uh, so that I can do a little bit more for the book, uh, make sure that's that's in a good spot, and then create some of these YouTube videos to help complement it. So thank you so much for joining me for this season, season three, and we will begin again with season four. And please make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so that you do get the latest updates. I don't really go on social media much anymore. Uh, I may start that again in September. We'll see. I've really been enjoying my time away from it. So if you do want to hear from me and know what's going on, that's really the best way, which is stephaniefay.com. And I will be having a new mini book coming out as well that you can get if you are a subscriber. And that will be later in August. And that's on human systems intelligence. Something that is a, it's a topic of passion for me as we enter an era of more and more influence from AI. And I think it's something that the more we understand about what is truly unique about humans and human intelligence, the more we can tap into our potential and how we might actually thrive in an era of 
higher involvement of technology and other other kinds of intelligence. So I hope that you will join my email list and that way you'll be able to get a copy of that book. Thanks so much again for joining me and I will catch you in the next episode. 